I also don't have a driving license, mainly down to laziness, not down to any sort of governmental conspiracy. But you can't be tracked by the New World Order, so... <laughs> you know, swings and roundabouts, definitely. Okay, hello and welcome to episode four of All The Way Through, the podcast looking at the Louis Theroux back catalogue to work out whether we love him as much as we always thought we did. I am Matthew DeMar speaking and I'm joined by Alex Watson. Hello, Alex. Hello from the Edinburgh studio, which is my spare bedroom. Alex, what outfits have we got on today? I've got my full camo on. I don't know. I feel like we, maybe I wore camo already in the UFO episode, though. Yeah. I've gone for a select New World Order outfit, which includes a United Nations flag draped around me and some sort of uh, black hat to make me look sinister. You've come dressed as a United Nations van. That gets us on to the subject of this week's episode, which is about collecting tins, uh, self-isolating, living in bunkers and social distancing. Obviously, we are recording this in the time of coronavirus, and it is an episode about survivalists, a movement of people who essentially live away from normal society in, in order to protect themselves from what they see as the growing new world order and the idea that someday there will be a war which will destroy them. I think that's a fair summary of what survivalists believe. I think so. And I think that probably the first time we watched this episode, we thought, look at these nuts. And now in the time that we're living, we're like, hey, can we go and live with them, please? I took notes not only for this podcast, but also for my general life. So the episode is filmed almost entirely in Idaho, I think, which is kind of the middle of America. It opens in the world's tiniest plane. It's more of a corridor, I think, really, than a plane. It's spectacularly small. Louis is casually reading a magazine called American Survival Guide, which is his kind of brushing up on the subject before he gets there. You know that he hadn't done any research. He just decided to buy that at the airport. Absolutely. But if he went on that website now, which American Survival Guide is still going, they are booming at the moment. The business is going very well. Their latest posts include a webinar for economic injury disaster loans, how to survive the new normal, and beware of fake news and do not fall for coronavirus scams. All very helpful tips. This is their kind of prime audience. Honestly, working in mainstream media as I am just now, that's exactly the same content as I am <laughs> publishing. So, hey. Check their content plan because I think they've these guys have got it nailed. So then Louis steps down and he, he arrives in Idaho. He kind of gives this kind of militaristic metaphor for his, his venture into this, this territory. And he says he's armed only with a cardboard tube. And I've got written next to that Chekhov's gun. If I, if I see that a cardboard tube is mentioned by Louis specifically, I want that, that then to be used in the episode. Yeah, why does that never come back? It never comes back. I don't know if there's a second cut of this where they use the cardboard tube at some point. He never talks about it again. But why do they establish that he's got a cardboard tube? What would you have? I mean, posters maybe? Or what would you have in there? I don't know. It's a bit of a continuity error, I think, on the part of the editor. Also, who brings a cardboard tube with them on a plane? What? That was the 90s. You could bring anything on a plane back then. <laughs> to kick things off, we arrive in Safe Trek, the survivalist supermarket, essentially. And this is owned by Steve Quayle? He's the first big character that's in this episode. A full-time patriot activist, like thousands of other Americans, Louis stresses. And he now just sort of spends his time preparing for the inevitable war that's going to come to America. 
He's a former stockbroker and NASCAR driver is also the details about Steve Quayle's life. Both quite different careers. This man is, has had many hats in his time. <laughs> he also, as I've discovered, is an author. If you go on the Safe Trek website, you can, for the reasonable price of $240, buy the complete Steve Quayle book package. Titles including Empire Beneath the Ice, Exogenesis... Little Creatures, Weather Wars, and Beef Eaters. No, there's not Beef Eaters there. That's just a, a nod back to an earlier episode. At the time that we are meeting Steve, he maybe hasn't become quite as accomplished of an author. Um, but he is out there spreading the word about uh, the New World Order, which uh, is a concept that comes up constantly in this episode. And it's basically the idea that the government, or all governments, are moving towards creating one world government that will then be a bit of a dictatorship over the whole of the world. Steve says that they've got a motto. Uh, they're, they're quite organised and their motto is order out of chaos. Louis slightly mocks this and says... Wait, wait, wait. The, the New World Order has a motto. It has a motto. Like a little club or something. Well, not a Does little a club, tie? a big club. No. That is their motto. Order out of chaos. Order out of chaos. And what all, do they have a badge? Um, which Steve doesn't seem too impressed by. It's quite a big club, Louis, and it's quite serious. It's also worth mentioning that New World Order is the name of a very successful pro wrestling faction that included Hulk Hogan. So when people mention New World Order in this episode, I cannot help but think of Hulk Hogan at the head of this with his blonde moustache. I think Hulk Hogan it could become like a, some kind of world leader. I can see it happening. I think if that sex tape didn't ruin him, this is where he would be by now. The New World Order is one thing that I guess maybe the Patriots can't kind of nail that down because it's a bit of a, a vague concept. But they're really, really not fans of the UN, the United Nations. And that comes up a lot. They think that the UN will be the control vehicle of world domination. And then the New World Order will spring from that. And Steve says at one point, New World Order slash the UN, they engineer crises. <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to question Steve's grammar. He's a published author and I'm not. But I don't think it is crises. And he talks about the fact that they want to eliminate four-fifths of the world's population. And then Louis points to his camera crew, says, that's four of those five people here. And the camera swings to them, which is a very nice little gonzo segment, I thought. Oh, they're so cute as well. They do like a little wave. It's very sweet. And then Steve cuttingly just says, yes, he's the one in five that will survive and the rest will perish. Steve's plan for how he's going to survive the new world order takeover and we are not, the rest of us collectively, kind of comes into play. He takes Louis to the show home survival shelter, which is built to withstand a nuclear blast. It's just a little sort of circular pod, isn't it? Yeah. Cost $35,000 plus shipping. Oh, plus shipping. I assume that was with shipping. No, they don't even throw that in. It's quite a, a cosy unit, I'd say. It looks like a deluxe Glastonbury toilet. Yeah, it's not even like a, a nice camper van or something. It's just very bare inside. So this is the template version. Louis asks if he would be able to see Steve's own shelter. And Steve says, no, he will not let him in. Louis says, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as we learn, Steve is maybe the least accommodating person in the whole survivalist movement. Everyone else is so willing to let Louis stay slash live in their homes, move in. 
Steve is very much at the commercialization end of this movement. He he is making money. He has Save Trek to kind of get him through. And this is something we, we touched upon in the UFO episode as well. How do you make money from these very niche lifestyles? And I think the survivalist movement has more people kind of profiting from it than maybe any others we've seen so far. I mean, they say they're against government and they're against all that kind of thing, but they are still raking in a lot of money out of all of this. So worth bearing in mind. So while they're in the shelter, Louis kind of does the thing which he's done in other episodes where he's asked people about their limits. How far are they willing to go with this? And he asks Steve, will he shoot people? Steve replies by putting a finger to Louis's chest and asks him if it's morally right to defend himself, which leaves Louis kind of just gawping at the camera. And then they quickly cut to the sound of a gun being fired. And uh, you see very innocent, gangly, below the age of 30, Louis through firing a pistol on a gun range, which looks very strange. And he does say... Crikey, that's got... That's powerful. (laughs) Look, I'm trembling now. Crikey. Crikey. Very wholesome. Not as wholesome as the next person who steps up at the gun range, who is called uh, Shirley, who looks like Angela Lansbury, but can fire a gun like no one else. Shirley clearly could handle herself in the event of a war. Worth noting before we we move on from Steve, um, Steve is now on YouTube. Oh, good. Which shows you where this movement has ended up. It's kind of natural home in the conspiracy theory heavy internet. And his last post was a podcast which was titled Don't Let Yourself Be Deceived, which has gathered 90,000 views in a week. So we've got competition. Absolutely. I really hope Steve doesn't hear this and (laughs) send his followers. He can come on the show. That'd be great. Steve, if you're listening, please come and talk to us. Please come talk to us. We will read your books before we do this. Especially beef eaters. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so next character... In this episode is a biggie. Yeah. Louis goes to the wilds of Idaho to meet with Bo Greets. I think it's Greits. I, I took a stab. Who is a former Green Berry and former presidential candidate. Yeah, for the populist party. And was uh, allegedly the model for Rambo. Bo Greitz is worthy of a whole podcast series on his own. He's a really interesting guy who has founded this commune called Almost Heaven in the outskirts of Idaho. He was in the Special Forces for 22 years, including in the Vietnam War. And like Louis mentioned, he ran for a presidential candidate under the slogan, God, Guns and Greits. But he didn't he didn't win, I guess. Uh, yeah, he was the 38th president. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I would know how to pronounce his surname if, if that were the case. His political manifesto was titled The Bill of Greits. In my notes about Almost Heaven, I've just written, definitely a cult. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Almost Heaven does sound like it could be a sort of bad, cheap centre parks ripoff as well. Now, because of Heaven's Gate, maybe I just associate any organisation with the word heaven in it as a bad cult. <laughs> I think it's, it's good to go in with that methodology and then slowly work back from there. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's ever gotten to the bottom of Uh, what happens here but either louis and his crew turn up a day early or Bo does not pay attention to the day that they're meant to turn up but um something goes wrong and they are not expected when they turn up at the door which is quite fun but Bo lets them in anyway asking them to take off your shoes as you come in (laughs) 
Louis bounded into the house. He's already basically in the living room when Bo shouts after him, take your shoes off. And so they, they go in to see Bo and he's conducting his radio show. Quite full on. I mean, I know they've edited this section to make it very sort of short, sharp, extreme views, but it seems quite intense. Yeah, a few quotes I got from uh, Bo's uh, radio show were, a 40-foot Jesus turns up in front of him. And then another cut to, why would anyone want to conduct anal sex? So Bo is clearly some sort of prototype Alex Jones at this point. Once the radio show is over, Louis does a little interview with him in the kitchen and Louis is doing the classic sort of almost cartoon style gulping and pulling his collar away from his throat. He's obviously made very nervous by Bo. Yeah, he's and he admits he's, he's a little intimidated. But is this classic Louis? Is this Louis attempting to lull them into a false sense of security? Maybe. But I don't know. It's not often that he falters like that. No. But I think maybe for someone like Bo, who is, is clearly, and you see him, he's a very macho man. And the inspiration for Rambo is not far off. Maybe the best strategy to that is not to try and take him on in some sort of masculine way, but to try and kind of concede that he is a tough guy and Louis is a slightly nerdy, bookish type. Yeah, become the, the beta to the alpha kind of thing. Yeah. If you want to go all Jordan Peterson on this, yes. <laughs> the one stat that I noted down here was that apparently Bo claims to have killed 400 people with his own hands. That's more than the um, alien resistance movement. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So that's maybe why Louis is a bit nervous. They kind of sit down to discuss why Almost Heaven ended up where it is using a nice prop, which is a huge map. And then Bo starts to lop off sections of the United States that wouldn't be deemed suitable for a survivalist's paradise. So it's either a natural disaster or too close to government hubs um, or some kind of man-made problem that would mean that it wouldn't be a safe place to be. And Louis joins in and draws a rocket, lava and earthquake on Bo's illustrated map. So they leave Bo's house and go for a wander around the whole estate. And Louis wonders, Was there a spot on almost heaven waiting for me? And then this becomes location, 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 as Louis is guided round the estate. But actually, uh, fun fact, location, location, location didn't start until the year 2000. So Louis had copyright on this and should have really explored it further. Oh, it was Channel 4, wasn't it? So they could have been watching and then stolen the idea. Exactly. Kirsty and Phil were sitting at home with nothing to do and then suddenly this sprung into their laps. So they, they visit Almost Heaven 2, which is T-O-O, not T-W-O, the offshoot of Almost Heaven because they needed more space. They do mention at one point that there are 60 to 70 families living in Almost Heaven, so it's a significant number of people. And yeah, Louis Louis's pondering the idea of living there. Yeah, and one point Bo is walking with him in this kind of huge field and, and there, there's a cabin. And he says, you could see yourself moving from London and setting up in a log cabin here which at one point felt like Bo was talking directly at me while I was watching this from my, my London flat. Yeah, I was I was kind of trying to Google it as well. Like, how much would that cost? There is something quite... And this is the point. I think there is something quite appealing about this lifestyle. There is, but it's almost like that romantic kind of cowboy vigilante idea where, you know, they are... I mean, in the eyes of the government, they are criminals. They're not... I mean, we'll get onto that, but they're not paying taxes and... They really don't like the government. Um, so it might seem like a sort of peaceful, idyllic place, but actually they're always on edge. They're getting up 
to do patrols and they're looking over their shoulder for the UN. Yeah, it seems like you can't divorce one aspect from another or particularly in the, in the case of Almost Heaven, that, that's impossible. As Bo speaks about the one thing that you need to live there is a... Uh, is swear to this constitutional covenant that they have, which is I will stand in the defense of my neighbors and their constitutional rights. And that's their only rule that they have kind of to live there, which sounds like a kind of thing you'd, you'd, you'd sign up to and go, yeah, okay, that's fine. But in a situation where you where you mentioned people are not paying taxes and are living on the outskirts of society, that you may have to enact that at some point. And they claim not to be a militia community. I think Louis asks that outright is this a militia community? And Bo says, no. He says, there are maybe three families out of 60 or 70 that are violent or are looking forward to an attack from the government because he thinks maybe they're in it for the wrong reasons. And Bo seems honestly pretty level. I mean, if you put his mental radio show aside, he seems pretty level. But there's one thing that he talked about in this segment that I'm sure you'll have picked up on too. It's the chips in the forehead, isn't it? Yeah, the chips in the forehead. Okay, right. Hear Bo out on this. So you, you please, you you kind of fill in what what Bo's theory is. Yeah, Bo kind of says that his problem with the government is that he doesn't, and he he, gl- he glosses over it at first. Well, you know, I don't want the chip the chip in my forehead, blah blah blah. And Louis's like, hang on, what what do you mean by that? And Bo basically suggests that the government wants to implant some kind of microchip into people in order to track them and all the rest of it which, I mean, certainly isn't technology now, as far as I know, and wasn't technology in the late 90s. So where where was he going with that? Alex, I'm going to shock you now. 2018, an article on Business Insider. Thousands of people in Sweden are embedding microchips under their skin to replace ID cards uh, by a journalist called Alexandra Marr. Mm. This is a thing. In the article, it says, about four years ago, Swedish biohacking group Bionifiken started organizing implant parties where groups of people insert chips into their hands en masse. And they've done this in the US, UK, France, Germany, and Mexico. There's 3,000 people that have done this in Sweden alone. Oh, my God. This is the thing. Bo, this is the one point where you think Bo sounds absolutely ludicrous, but maybe he was onto something. Yeah, you put something in under your skin you don't really know what that could be used for and it's not like it's easy to get it out no i think this is something that it was talked about in an adam curtis documentary where he's talking about how people now just actively will give their information to private companies for the ease of life so think about the internet people like knowing that an internet search algorithm can predict what youtube videos they want to watch because it's easy it's nice for them they just want to watch youtube videos and they want things that they'll like So people have kind of spent years fighting against this government idea of surveillance and and people watching your every move. And now people like Google and Apple do it for the sake of you kind of having a good search history or a shopping basket that suits you. Yeah. And we all know that our iPhones and our Google Homes and whatever can listen to us and that actual people can listen to us through those. And we still have them. We still use them. So. So never doubt Bo. You're right. You're right. I take it back, actually. Sorry, Bo. Sorry, Bo. Okay, so in order to find out a bit more, I spoke to Jana Sjöblad, who was the co-founder of the Bionifikan movement in Sweden, which saw all the implant parties. And now he runs a company called Disruptive, 
which sees chip implant technology as a kind of an extension of the Fitbit health tracking culture. So we spoke about how Bogreitz's nightmare of uh, chips in your hand has become a reality and what are the benefits of this invasive technology. I'm Hannes Schweblad. I am the co-founder of Disruptive and we are developing chip implant technology for the betterment of mankind. The first thing I really want to know is can you briefly tell me about what biohacking is and what your route was into this world? Biohacking is, uh, I'd say it's a subculture and uh, biohacking is, has many sort of um, roots in other tech-driven subcultures such as the hacker movement and community. Biohackers is simply an extension of that community, but applying novel technologies. So traditional hackers, if we can call them so, are typically people who, who do stuff with computer hardware and software. And biohackers are simply extending the hacker ethic to uh, wetware, manipulating biological systems, not just computer systems, anything from animals to cells to insects and even homo sapiens. Even Homo sapiens, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? So in this documentary that I watched, they talk about this kind of thing in the late 1990s. How far advanced are we from that point to where we are today? What's changed most importantly is the, the democratization of different technologies that used to be super expensive but are now dirt cheap. Some obvious examples are wearable sensors. If you would make a wristband that would log your vital body parameters in the 1990s, it would cost millions. And now we can buy them for a couple of hundred bucks, uh, you know, in, in any tech shop. And uh, people can also build their own uh, type of devices with this. We'll also have great advances in big data and cloud computing allows us to collect and process large amounts of data. And perhaps most interestingly is the very rapid advances in uh, genetics for the, for most common people out there they will think mm. of, of things like biohacking and these microchip implants mm. in people as the stuff of science fiction how practical is this technology really i like to compare chip implants today with sort of mobile phones of the 1980s some people used them and found them useful but they were relatively expensive and didn't have that many brilliant uses. Mobile phones now are as, you know, a ubiquitous component of, of everyday life for, for almost anyone. So this is how I see chip implants. It's a, it's a technology that has been proven its usefulness for a limited range of, of purposes, like replacing your keys and access cards, the gym card, or getting points in different shopping clubs. All the different cards that you would carry in a wallet or handbag. But in my view, the technology, that's sort of interesting for a limited group of people. Okay, I have my keys in my hand, that's, that's, you know, it's a fun gimmick, but ultimately it's not interesting for most people and it's not a really a game changer even for those who are pretty hardcore about it. So I have been working with, together with some friends who are also very interested in spaces to asking ourselves the question, if we are going to ask people to actually put a piece of technology in themselves, we need to have very, very good reasons for doing so. And what is it that you cannot do with a wearable or something in your pocket. The only real reason to put stuff in the body is if it can do things that you cannot do anywhere else. Body data, health data from the implant. This also means, in my view, of somewhat of a normalization of this technology, going from, oh, crazy people doing hacking to, okay, here we have healthcare scenarios. And then it sort of becomes simply a part of the broader medtech uh, industry.
One of the things that really kind of attracted the press attention to you was this idea of the chip implant parties. Yeah. Um, can you give me a little bit more information on that and how this kind of came about? Nothing was planned. It was just, we were just having fun, right? My insight from having been active in the uh, hacker and maker communities for many years before commencing with biohacking is that the power of community is very strong and the insight that if you simply share good ideas with a bigger group of people, then uh, that's when, when magic begins to happen. The traditional way of getting an implant would be that someone would go to a piercing studio or similar and they would get an implant and then they go online and search for user cases. But our idea was to make this a social event uh, inspired by, let's say, Tupperware parties, <laughs> really to that extent. There is a strong emotional component to, to actually inserting a piece of tech in yourself. People bonded over the experience and it was a very useful way for people to share these feelings and, and ideas and, and reflections they had. And then they also kept in touch and cooperated in developing and finding new uses for technology. One of the funny outcomes from these implant parties was, for example, that people would meet again a year later to celebrate their sort of cyborg or digital birthdays. And we have a whole, whole sort of host of jokes and, and uh, rituals around these implant parties, for example, that, you know, you, someone gets an implant, you congratulate them to the upgrade. <laughs> and, uh, you know, happy new birthday. And, and we have many funny sayings. But is there something to be said for what you trade off with this technology, the kind of accessibility to your information, the ease of life in terms of knowing your data and being able to, like you say, pay with things with your hands. Is the trade off there a right to privacy? The idea that you kind of have um, control over your own biological data. Mm. Put, putting the conspiracy theorists and the religious nuts aside, there are many valid uh, criticisms around the applications of this technology. And I would say that the most interesting conversations I have in the space are from people who work with InfoSec and uh, privacy, obviously. And um, I myself am a strong privacy advocate. Obviously, if you log and collect uh, biometric data, we have to have the utmost quality of our systems in order to, to make sure that that data is not compromised in any way. However, I think that the market is actually solving this in decent ways. There are many sort of platforms, for example, for wearables. If you take the uh, Apple Watch or Fitbit or any of the others, they have already developed privacy policies and uh, data protection policies that, that, that work well. Coming from a privacy by design perspective, I think is very helpful because then it's not about collecting all the data we can, but it's all about you know, data minimization, just looking to collect exactly the most useful data and also putting truly the users in control of the data themselves. What's the likelihood of the average person being microchipped in the next decade? I think that this technology will absolutely become a lot more widespread I think it will be a perfectly normal thing for a lot of people to have a smart implant in their body. Uh, we know that the technology is harmless. It's easy to inject into the body. It just takes a few seconds and it is as easy to remove. I want to help create a technology that gives everyone a real-time dashboard on what is happening inside their bodies. You'd be able to see, okay, what is my pulse, blood sugar, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd be able to share that with the medical doctor for remote diagnostics or, or other purposes. And I think that that would be an enormous lifesaver. So we're doing this for the benefit of mankind. Almost having pretty much dried up. And there is an article from 2016 in the local paper, which is called the Spokesman Review, 
which is talking about a lady called Rebecca Shoda who was running for office in the local area based on the fact that she'd had interactions with guys like Greitz during her uh, teenage years as a as a waitress in a diner and and felt that they were terrible representatives for this community and wanted to bring in legislation that would hopefully curb their influence in these areas. So it's really interesting that the, these survivalist groups do feel like they're on the outskirts of society, but actually they're just going into a community that was already there and, and kind of heavily disrupting it. Yeah, and they're probably the guys who talk the loudest in a lot of situations as well. Yeah. I was really intrigued to see how the everyday people of Idaho felt about these survivalists coming in and taking over huge patches of land around where they live and how they can kind of live a normal life essentially in this area. So I reached out to Rebecca Schroeder uh, to find out how she ran for office in 2018, knocking on over 12,000 doors in her community with her husband to find that there was a huge number of redoubters in her area. This is the newest survivalist movement that has moved in based on the reputation of Idaho as a place where these people are welcome. My name is Rebecca Schroeder and I was born and raised in Idaho. I grew up my, you know, most of my life in Idaho County, which is very rural in a town of 600 people and attended college here. I studied environmental chemistry and I didn't really have any political aspirations, but after having a child born with cystic fibrosis, I really began advocating for healthcare policies and ultimately um, ran for office. One of the things I came across while researching you was this interaction you had with Bo Greitz. How prominent a person was he and the Almost Heaven community in that area when you were younger? So I graduated from high school in 1996. And so that was really like kind of the heyday of the almost heaven community. Bo Greitz had an unsuccessful run for president in 1992. So he was a fairly high profile individual, I would say, coming into a tiny rural area like that. This was a logging community, a hunting community. There were a lot of people that lived out in the woods and so my interactions with him were limited to when he would come to the restaurant that I worked in um, as a waitress and he would bring some of his friends and occasionally his wife in um, for meals and I would just wait on them and they were always armed and a little bit intimidating so I mostly just wanted to avoid having any trouble with him but everyone in the Clearwater Valley knew who they were and just thought that they were a little bit out there, I guess. Louis Theroux, the, the presenter, also meets with Richard Butler and the Aryan Nations movement, mm -hmm. um, which also found a home in Idaho. But is the lawsuit and the closure of their facility the end of their story in the area? I think that we're seeing right now that it's not. And just the same way that, you know, Bo Greitz uh, leaving the compound in the Clearwater Valley was not the end of that attitude there either. You know, this, this kind of anti-government streak that has permeated through both uh, Bogreit's followers, um, the Aryan nations, and now this new kind of anti-government American readout movement, a lot of those people just filtered into the same, you know, small towns and and wilderness that are still here now. And then the current restrictions that have been put on movement because of this public health crisis 
has really been a flashpoint that a lot of those attitudes that have just been latent for a long time are really feeling emboldened and speaking up loudly again. So I, I definitely think that saying that we are past that is a mistake. You ran for office in 2018, as you said, um, and part mm -hmm. of your campaign, uh, from what I can see, was uh, being a voice against this readout movement. Mm -hmm. Bo Greitz had a lot of political aspirations and the American readout movement, they have written like this um, huge manifesto that's accessible. They had a plan to rather than kind of start their own new political party or system, they were going to systematically take over the Republican Party. And that is exactly what they have done. You know, our governor has been quite sensible with his public health restrictions that he's issued, but the lieutenant governor, the second in command of our state, contributes regularly to this American readout movement. She, you know, it, we have elected people to represent us who don't believe that government has a role in our lives. The head of the Republican Party here in my county subscribes to this American readout ideology that is just changing the platform changing who we are as a community, sort of under the noses of really well-meaning folks, I think, but maybe just not understanding how deep the problem really is. You know, when we have complete control of both local and many of our state offices by people who have moved here and subscribed to this anti-government ideology, I mean, their, their goal, the American Redoubt's goal, is to like secede from the United States and have their own liberty state, which to me does not sound like a pro-Idaho platform at all. Bogreit certainly didn't do anything good for our small community. And I don't want my home state to just be the designated bug out place for some new group of, you know, fringe anti-government conspiracy theorists. If you put yourself forward as, as someone who is against these sorts of movements, surely that as a campaign idea causes a lot of trouble for you. Yeah, I wish that I could report otherwise, but you're absolutely right. They have been so successful because intimidation is very effective. And I definitely got um, a lot of threats and harassment and it was hard for me and, and my family, like I said, I have a young son. My husband really didn't like it. I did a lot of door knocking by myself and you can't be sure how people are gonna react to you as a woman or as a, I ran as a Democrat. So it was definitely, um, it was like an adrenaline sport. And what is it about Idaho that attracts these kind of groups? Why do they relocate to your state in mass numbers? Well, I think that in a lot of ways, moving to Idaho is like going back in time. You know, I mean, we, we're very rural. We still have places where you can build a big house and live on property all by yourself and not see anyone else if that's the way that you want to live. And we also have an attitude here that it's kind of live and let live. People don't tend to bother you if you're not interfering with their lifestyle. And we, for the last several decades, have one of the most single party legislatures in the country. You know, we're super majority Republican. 
So for that reason, we have some of the most conservative government policies and social programs in the United States, making it really tax friendly and regulation friendly for people who don't want the government telling them what to do. Do communities and people like Greitz, like Almost Heaven, Aryan Nations, the Readout Movement, do they make it difficult for people to live normal lives in Idaho? I think that where I live is becoming even more conservative, that that recruitment of ideology and that almost complete takeover of the local power structure is to the point now that, you know, I'm not sure who is represented here in Coeur d'Alene anymore. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really having questions about <laughs> who we are as a state. And I'm concerned, certainly, that the influx of this, you know, fringe ideology has changed the direction that we can go and, and made it almost unsafe for some families and the inequalities have become too deep. I don't know. I'm a little bit jaded, Matthew. <laughs> I do believe that the people of Idaho are worth fighting for, which is why I'm still involved. Going back to the troublesome few families in almost heaven who are looking forward to the New World Order war, Louis asks if he can go and meet some of them. And he's a little bit nervous, but he goes up to where Mike Kane, who becomes quite a big character, is building his house. And Louis starts chatting to them. Uh, and he, he kind of says to Mike, oh, someone told me you might be a bit scary. And Mike says, who told you that? Yeah. <laughs> and Louis tells on Bo. <laughs> Bo builds Mike Kane up to be the baddest man in the whole damn town. And then we get introduced to what is essentially survivalist Tom Hanks. Yeah, very normal, generally quite friendly looking guy, I would say. And Louis asks, yeah, like you said, he asks him, are you scary? And Mike's reply... No, I'm not scared, really. Only if you, uh, you come up here to do harm to me or my family, then I probably am as scary as you are if someone came to do harm to you and your family. Which is a completely rational point. That is a fair point. Trying to imagine Louis through as scary is quite difficult. Yeah. But I'm sure he could be if he needed to be. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> He'd just try to reason with everyone. Yeah. He chats to Mike and... I'm not sure who it is that's helping Mike to build the house, but t two gentlemen who are doing the whole thing themselves, they said they need to develop skills because they want to be fully self-sufficient. So they're building the framework of this house and they're putting the insulation in. And Louis leaning against the edge of the house and eventually says, hey, put me to work. If you know, if you want any help, I could I could maybe help. This is a recurring theme. One thing we always say about Louis is his ability to pick up a manual task and just do it to kind of put people at ease with his company but he seems totally lost in this kind of situation <laughs> of diy and building homes and i think mike quite sensibly takes a look at him and goes nah it's okay yeah you just stand there that's fine but they bond a little bit yeah and he offers his tv presenting skills and mike doesn't bat this away and say it's stupid and he says we might need that yeah <laughs> So eventually, Mike inv invites Louis round to his house, his built house, not his half-built house, for dinner, and even invites him to stay over. There's loads of really good bits in this. This is one of my favourite scenes in the whole thing. So Louis gets introduced, and there's a gun rack in Mike's house, and he asks Mike about people in the UK seeing this will be quite intimidated. And Mike explains it. For an American to live without a gun, 
would be like you guys having to live without tea. And that's true. If, if anyone from the New World Order tried to take my tea, they could take it from my cold, dead hands. They are not getting anywhere near my tea. Then they go into Mike's daughter's room. He's giving him the full tour. Oh my God. Imagine if you were the daughter. Presumably at quite a difficult early teenage age, your dad lets the BBC go into your incredibly messy bedroom and then takes the piss out of you on TV. So Louis's reply here is incredible. He says, Wow, looks like the Fed's already made it in here. Really? This is worse than Waco. Isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Which is just absolutely damning of how dirty that room is. Then Mike says, do you want to stay? If you want to stay over, this this is your room. Um, and takes uh, Louis into a room, which I assume it must be a, a teenage boy who has, has been in there. And Louis says, oh, great. It's full of Keanu Reeves posters. I love Keanu Reeves. There is two Keanu Reeves posters on the wall. And I want you to guess which one had the better IMDb rating. The first one, scarily enough, is called Johnny Mnemonic. It was from 1995, and the plot was a data courier literally carrying a data package inside his head must deliver it before he dies from the burden or is killed by the accuser. Wow. And then the other one is a walk in the clouds. Same year, a married soldier returning from World War II poses a pregnant woman's husband to save her from her father's anger and honour. I have never heard of either of these films. Not even slightly. I'm going to say the second one, the soldier one, sounds like it would do better. You'd be correct. That has 6.7 out of 10. Johnny Mnemonic, even though it predicted the future, only got 5.7. I don't know if if Louis really did stay at Mike's. I like to think that he did. I think he did. They have dinner after that, don't they? Well, they have a bit of a chat in the kitchen first. And Mike's wife is there. She's lovely. She's called Cha-Cha, right? Yeah. She seems really cute. She's just cooking. And um, she kind of jokingly reveals that Mike was a hippie back in the day. And believed in peace and love. And Louis says, well, that seems quite different to, you know, your current perspective of everyone should have guns. And Mike says, I was young and dumb then. But it, it's a very tender moment because Mike, it seems he's doing that thing which like married couples do where one of them will slightly embarrass them with like stories of the past. It's really, it's quite sweet. And then there's a, the scene where they, 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 get, they move from this to dinner and Mike is saying grace. And then the youngest child shouts amen in the most tiny tim voice i've ever heard and it is like a saccharine sweet tv advert they won me over this family despite their massive gun rack yeah so then they kind of sit around and then mike starts talking of the new world order which he obviously believes in too but it's it's this thing which i'm kind of realized i love about louis three documentaries which is really normal boring situations but then you have to remember that these people are absolute cultists or outsiders it's so good just now it's only just hit me that this is maybe the best example so far of how well the louis through documentaries do this because there are obviously much more extreme examples further down the line where there's episodes about pedophiles and um, other things like that where you find yourself sympathizing with the characters and then there's a voice in your back of your head going no come on these are you know bad people and it's not as black and white as that it never is but this is maybe the first time i think in weird weekends where you just forget that they are quite extreme people that you probably don't agree with on a lot of things and this is the first one where i think the groups have moved from weird to downright considered dangerous 
I don't think any of the others so far really have been considered dangerous to this extent. And so this is it's really good contrast to being like, he sits around and plays Monopoly with them. He has dinner. He makes jokes about Mike getting a get-out-jail-free card while they're playing the board game. And it kind of mixes that in with them talking about the New World Order and how much they believe in this this kind of one government that's going to take over the earth. One thing, though, that I think maybe is Mike's saving grace is, and there are a couple of times characters do this in this episode, uh, they're talking about the New World Order and Mike actually seems like he thinks it wouldn't work, the idea of it, because he says it would need a benevolent dictator to work. And he said, there's no such thing. So whether that's him saying, actually, I don't think it could become a thing, or whether it's him saying, actually, the New World Order will be more dangerous than we think because it will be run by a, a tyrant. But he does seem to, you know, have a reasonably educated view on it. He's thought about it. It's not just someone said to him, oh, this is the scary thing that you should be scared of. Yeah. Again, complicated. After this, they, they all kind of go off to bed and then we're hit again with the reality of this is not a normal household when at 4am Louis awoken and suddenly is in the back of a truck with Mike on the neighbourhood watch patrol that they have to do every day. I watched the episodes with the subtitles on just in case I miss names and things like that. And when Louis woke up, it just said Louis groaning. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got a giant flask with him of something warm. I'm, I'm thinking Mike's wife probably gave him that. And he says to Mike, Mike, why are we here? It's four o'clock in the morning. What are we doing? And Mike says, we're doing the neighborhood watch to make sure things are peaceful. We do this 365 days a year, Christmas, whatever, every single day. They go out and they patrol just in case. They join up with other people as well and they kind of get out of the car and they walk around. And Louis says it's three uneventful, very cold hours later that they stop and nothing's happened. And I think Louis sort of asked, well, what, what would we expect to happen? What are we waiting for? And this is when Mike talks about the, the concept of the UN vehicles that are going to come to the middle of nowhere, Idaho, and, and have some kind of standoff with the almost heaven residents. And that, to me, is probably the most mental thing Mike has said thus far. Yeah, because then they're talking about what would Mike do in that situation. Louis builds that hypothetical for him. And then Mike talks about how he, if they wouldn't stop, he would fire on them. And Louis asks, where would you kind of fire? And he says, we aim for the windshield, which kind of implies we are shooting to kill in this situation. And that maybe that does agree with what Bo said about Mike, where he said some of these families are, you know, looking forward to it. And then very nicely cuts to the next scene where Louis still with the Kane family is going to town, sat in the back seat next to Chacha, Mike's wife, and he's holding her handbag and reveals what's inside the handbag, which is um, a, a pistol. She's got a handgun in her in her bag. Without the safety on. It doesn't have a safety, she says. But Louis says, please put the safety on in a quite groaning tone. It shows that he's clearly bonded with this family quite a lot in the short space of time that they've been together. And it's quite surreal seeing Louis through holding a handgun twice in, in one episode. If that wasn't enough, Mike casually reveals from the front seat where he is driving the car that he doesn't have a driving license. So if they get stopped by the police, they're going to get into trouble. And Louis obviously questions this. And Mike says, no, these are all government things. I don't have a driving license. I don't have registration on my car. Or I do, but it's out of date. And I don't have insurance. The government can track us using these things, so we don't have them. 
I think they do quite a good job here of putting you in a false sense of security with the Kane family and then revealing that they are all batshit insane. But then we meet the most batshit insane character <laughs> you've ever seen in anything. This whole documentary is a top trumps of you think you've seen batshit, we can give you batshit. We introduced to Grandpa John, who owns Grandpa John's Hardware Heaven. Describe his look for the listeners. He kind of reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if anyone ever watched Neighbours, but Harold from, from Neighbours, there's like a vibe. A psychotic Harold Bishop. <laughs> he's slightly older, he's got a kind of nice casual shirt on. And yeah, at first I think he comes off as harmlessly childlike, like the way he talks. He says, I look forward to opening the shop every day, I love it. And he reveals his passion in life and his favourite hobby, which is roller skating. And you think, okay, this guy's quite sweet, quite harmless. And then actually he's a survivalist as well. And suddenly he's debating it with Mike. Grandpa John describes the almost heaven community as newcomers. And it's almost like this weird sort of gentrification of the survivalist movement. Yeah, exactly. He was there before with his hardware shop. But this is another person who is obviously vastly gaining commercially from the survivalist movement. Grandpa John owns a huge hardware store. Probably for me, the second most uncomfortable point of this episode is Louis goes into the back with Grandpa John or he gets a tour of the shop. He ends up in the back and we see a lot of cutesy things like photos of him doing competitions with rollerblading and things like that, roller skating. And then somehow they get on to talking about the Holocaust and Grandpa John says, well, it's funny how history has actually changed over the years and you guys are young, so you'll have learned differently to me. I was around for this and basically comes out and says they fudged the numbers on the holocaust and it probably didn't happen so we, we move quickly from fun quirky rollerblading grandpa into anti-semite very quickly yeah it's it's pretty extreme and again it's that thing where you you suddenly you think this is a really cute harmless person and actually they are mental <laughs> Grandpa John has form for this. He also spoke to a journalist called Philip Weiss from the New York Times for an article called Off the Grid, which was released in 1995. And again, he is talking about the Holocaust and Jewish people and the New World Order. Philip Weiss also speaks to Bo Greitz at good length as well. So it's interesting just to see how these ideas kind of formulate and start. And I think there is something to be said for these like long pieces in things like the New Yorker and New York Times definitely were inspiration for the documentaries that came up. Yeah, do you think these journalists are a little bit salty about the fact that Louis Theroux stole their, their concepts? I think they would have liked to call, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we survive Grandpa John and go back to almost heaven. Uh, and Louis does, as Matt always likes to point out, Louis does the very average everyday activity with Mike that allows Mike to relax and then hopefully open up to him, uh, which is chopping wood. Yeah. And it's quite a nice father-son moment, actually. It is. There is another one later on where they're kind of putting nails in wood and then firing a <laughs> rifle. It's all very father-son bonding. Louis asked Mike, what happened? Why did you become a survivalist? Because before that, I can't remember what they said he did as a job, but it was a very normal job. And then Mike said that something happened where IRS raided his bank account, which is the equivalent of, I suppose, HMRC in the UK. And the thing that really hurt him was... They also raided his daughter's bank account where she had $12 saved and they took that as well. And that was the last straw for Mike. So that's all it took for him to have to go and live in the middle of nowhere and 
not have a driving license anymore. Louis asks him, how do you think you'll be perceived in this documentary? It was a really interesting question. And he says, a radical nut, which is really far from the truth. Mike comes across as a very human, very rational, slightly hurt, slightly warped by the times he lives in kind of guy. Yeah, just kind of disillusioned, really. I thought the sort of saddest part about that was when he said, I think my kids see me as a radical nut too. So, I mean, he doesn't really go into it, but maybe he has older children who don't really get it. But yeah, it's it's quite sad, that whole thing. They like Keanu Reeves. They don't want to be living in a gated community in Idaho. <laughs> but then he he says that he's happier than he's ever been living this lifestyle. You know, he realizes that all the things that they used to do and they used to spend loads of money on, they don't need. He makes a reference to drinking $200 bottles of wine, which, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mike was a baller, clearly. You were spending too much on wine, Mike. Like you didn't have to go that far. So they, they, Louis and Mike have this really sincere moment and then the camera instantly cuts to Louis bouncing on Mike's trampoline <laughs> and clearly loving it so much. And trying to encourage Mike to join him on the trampoline as well. He says, come on, Mike, please come and join. And Mike replies, you're okay, Louis. I like you. Oh. That's Beautiful nice. moment. Tender. Yeah, I do feel like he's, he doesn't rub people up the wrong way as much in this episode as he has done in the past. No, weirdly not. He kind of feels at home with a lot of these people. Maybe because they just seem like quite nice guys. I think, especially Mike, and then we move from Mike Kane to another Mike after this. Yeah, why are they all called Mike? I did write down second Mike's surname. Oh, his name is Mike Ola. There we go. I wrote Mike too. <laughs> <laughs> Mike too. Louis has to head up way up north to meet Mike too, who is quite different to Mike Kane in that he's a hippie and an environmentalist. And he famously wrote the book, The $50 and Up Underground House Book, which has sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And he has lived in a hole in the ground for 28 years, according to Louis. A hobbit hole, as Louis describes it. So the whole crew trek through basically waist high snow presumably they I mean they could have chosen a better time of year to film this but i suppose it's quite dramatic and then they meet mike and then they all have to trek up to his house and yeah they get there and louis says it's a hobbit home which i think is fair it is in the ground and it is quite wooden it looks quite nice i mean there's no windows no and then louis asks it kind of goes into mike's house and asks for him for old photographs and mike kind of pulls out this high school photo album where he is an extremely clean-cut young man, which is definitely not the kind of ageing hippie that we're, we're presented with in the documentary. No, and I feel like we don't get that much about his backstory either. Bit of a mystery. But they get bored of the Hobbit hole, so they go to the bar after that, which, I mean, they're meant to be in the middle of nowhere, but there's a bar not that, you know, in walking distance. This bar is amazing. This is an iconic scene. <laughs> they cut to the bar where Mike and Louie are, are hanging out, there's mannequins with pubic wigs. Pool is going on. Uh, there's a band playing Mustang Sally. And then Louis, Mike, and a random other assortment of people who live in the Idaho wilderness proceed to dance a lot on camera. They're pulling a lot of shapes. And there is a famous gif of Louis dancing in this scene, which is absolutely incredible. But seeing the thing live again was, was a treat. As soon as I saw that he was wearing that jumper with the orange stripe across it, I was like, yes. The dancing is coming. They have a dance, probably have a few drinks, and then they go back to the Hobbit home 
and have a few more drinks. And make a series of toasts, getting more and more drunk as they go. At one point, Louis just has an amazing laugh, which is, yeah, definitely the most drunk we've seen him so far. Whoa. (laughs) I think that he sometimes pretends that he's drunk in later episodes, but I do believe that he actually is here. Yeah, they kind of set Louis up and he goes to sleep. And then the camera cuts to a sleeping Louis while Mike approaches the guest room carrying an acoustic guitar and singing. They do actually call it the guest hall, just to specify that. <laughs> yeah, Mike's actually a secret, like, he shreds guitars. A nice little folk number that he sings. And Louis kind of wakes up bleary-eyed with the most hungover face I've seen. His eyes are so bloodshot. And so then Mike tells him that breakfast is waiting and Louis just groans. He just moans like a teenager that he's been pulled out of his pit to go and eat breakfast with dad. He actually pulls his sleeping bag back up over his head and lies back down again. The menu for breakfast included bear meat. It sounded horrible. Barbecued. Mm. I mean, I'd probably try it. Why not? We also see Louis on the toilet. We do, which clearly I think shows that he is, he's hungover and maybe not quite within his senses. Even just for a joke shot, I feel like I wouldn't be comfortable sitting on an outside toilet with my underwear around my ankles. I think I'd still have to be quite drunk from the night before, aka <laughs> as Louis is. But he pulls it together, he has a shave and he goes and eats his breakfast and chats to Mike about the next sort of step up from the survivalist he says I-, I worry about the maybe more extreme people in the survivalist world because i worry that they might be a bit racist and mike says yeah you're probably right and then gives him the phone number for the racists yeah we cut to hayden lake idaho and we're going to be richard butler reverend richard butler who is the head of the aryan nations yeah so we cut to louis sitting in the back of a cadillac with richard butler this kind of old withered man driving He's so old, he looks about 5,000 years old. He is Methuselah. And then Reverend Jerry Grudy, who is described as Rich Butler's right-hand man, is kind of sitting in the back with Louis. They're driving through, obviously, some quite snowy conditions for where they are, but they maybe have a few near misses with either skidding on the road or nearly hitting other drivers. That's because Grandpa Simpson is literally driving the Cadillac. (laughs) Like he can't see over the steering wheel. (laughs) Hans Moleman is at the front. Do they have any good chat in the car? Grudy talks to Louis about the area around Hayden Lake and says it reminds him of Cheltenham, which Louis looks a little bit perplexed by. And he says Cheltenham, England. Yeah, which kind of hints at that maybe Jerry Grudy is a bit of a Britophile. Maybe that's part of why he warms to Louis as well. Absolutely, yeah. They get to Aryan Nations HQ. This scene was kind of like a sensory overload. They cut to footage of the Aryan Nation, which is this neo-Nazi movement that lives out in the outskirts of society. Um, it cuts to some of their congregations, people doing Nazi salutes, there's cross burnings. They go past a sign in the Cadillac that says whites only as they come into their territory. Then there is Hitler in a Christmas wreath. With a Christmas hat on. And then there's a dog called Hans, which is barking at Louis. I noticed that in the cross burning footage, there were actually people in Ku Klux Klan full outfits as well. And probably the most shocking thing, which I'm not going to repeat what it says on it. If you've seen the episode, you'll know. But there's a horrific homophobic sign up in a doorway as well. We're definitely dealing with a different kettle of fish here for the Aryan Nation survivalists. We've gone from lovely Mike to this very kind of weird neo-Nazi setup. 
And it begins with Louis getting shown around the church where they kind of do their sermons and the reverend says that non-white people wouldn't be welcome. And Louis says, why not? Which is one of those classic Louis stupid questions that maybe isn't that stupid, actually. Yeah, because nobody actually has an answer for something like that, do they? No. They go from the chapel through to a watchtower that they have over the facility. And Jerry starts talking about the Nazi salute. There must be two cameras. So some of the guys in the camera crew are down on the ground. And Louis says, oh, wave to them. And then that prompts Jerry to start talking about the Nazi salute and the reasons why white people would do a Nazi salute and people of other ethnicities would not. And it is a really horrendous conversation. Very uncomfortable. But then somehow from that, they get onto um, a conversation about the popular British TV show, Are You Being Served? Yeah, Louis turns it on his head and starts talking about Are You Being Served? Which Jerry is a big fan of. Britophile Jerry. His favourite thing in the show is Mrs. Slocum, who, if you haven't seen the show, was famous for talking about her cat and saying that she had uh, lost her pussy. <laughs> was was the ongoing joke of Are You Being Served? I have never seen Are You Being Served. It's a very much a, a relic of the 70s. It was on TV when I was a child. I used to watch it a little bit with my family, which was very strange. So then they talk about Mr. Humphreys, who is a quite effeminate camp character and jerry has has no time for mr humphreys yeah he just ignores that bit he says i don't know if he shields his eyes and plugs his ears or how you watch a tv show and ignore a main character i'm not sure and then he starts talking about how they threw in this character for the sake of diversity and because they felt they had to jerry's views are not dissimilar to very many people on twitter these days which was a scary moment uh, he really wouldn't like a female Doctor Who, probably, I bet. <laughs> that would set him off. Louis kind of starts to, I guess, to, to highlight the sort of ridiculousness of this view. He starts to repeat Mr. Humphrey's catchphrase, which is, I'm free. And Louis does it over and over again and, and tries to encourage Jerry to do it as well. He gets embarrassed. He doesn't want to do it. But then he says, we are free. I am free. Up here, we're free to discriminate. That never made it into the show. And then he kind of just goes on a bit of a rant. I suppose he's maybe getting a little bit irritated with Louis at this point. Again, we get back to the Holocaust and, and Jewish people and more extreme racism even than we've already seen. Following this, Louis gets his little bit of time with Richard Butler, who actually doesn't feature very heavily. It is more about Jerry. I think Jerry's maybe not smart enough to keep his mouth shut on the camera. He kind of asks Richard Butler, this kind of leader of Aryan Nations, about Bo Greitz, who he describes as a multiculturalist in a way that makes Bo look practically reasonable in comparison. Yeah, you're starting to think that Bo is very left-wing at this point. The pastor says he doesn't like, he describes them as the militia, which they say they are not, because they accept other races. And that's something that clearly the Aryan Nation is not all about. Would you like to know what happened to Aryan Nations? Yes, please. In September 2000, a lawsuit was filed against them on behalf of Victoria Keenan and her son Jason, and they said that they were beaten with rifles by Aryan Nation security guards in July 1998. This is kind of around the time Louis was there, a little bit later. So they were seen driving near the compound when their car backfired, and the guards thought this was a gunfire, and so pulled them out of the car and struck them several times, and then they were sued by this group on behalf of 
the Southern Poverty Law Center who pursue these extreme movements. The verdict was that they were sued for $6.3 million. Wow. This was to compensate the Keenans, but largely to punish Butler and his followers and to deter their kind of conduct in the future. They had to file for bankruptcy one month later. Part of this was that they lost their compound, which was then gifted to the North Idaho College Foundation. And now it's a park dedicated to peace. Oh, nice. What a result. That's cool. So did they just crawl into the woodwork or? Richard Butler didn't live much longer than this episode. You shock me. (laughs) And then I think infighting between the group essentially led them to becoming very irrelevant. Louis leaves again, totally justified, but maybe in the style of a a moody teenager rolling his eyes. Okay, Okay, dad. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes back to almost heaven. And he meets one last character as well, who he claims is probably the weirdest person that he's about to meet in this episode, which I, I feel like probably everyone's fatigued by all the weird people that they've already heard about here. But this guy's called Don, and he used to be a software engineer uh, before he became a survivalist. And he also worked for Greenpeace for a little while. So he, he kind of did the mainstream job. He did the hippie type thing the organized hippie and now he is living in a very uh, unique home in almost heaven i don't know if you want to describe what his house is like matt it's a straw house he lives in a house made of straw bales he's one of the three little pigs <laughs> he is this is a his grand designs moment again probably before the series was on air louis should have really copyrighted this he helps uh, don build his straw bale house well, does he really? While Don is loading a load of straw into his car, Louis says, I think that looks good. Don gives a very funny look to the camera as if to say, this guy. Louis actually says, I put my back out on Mike Kane's trampoline. <laughs> that is incredible. Don is adding an extra bit to his house. Louis climbs into this small straw granny flat on the side of his house and lies down and seems to be very comfortable there. And Don says, you can stay here whenever you want. Survivalists are so welcoming. He literally can't lie down flat in it. His feet stick out the end. And that's not the point. It's about the offer. It's hideous inside, by the way, just in case anyone's got this idyllic view of living in a house made of hay bales with a tarpaulin around it. It is awful inside. (laughs) Yeah, it's not comfy. This was a weird scene. I think they could have cut this bit. I also think Louis gets really, it's like he's not had a nap or something. He just gets really quite argumentative with Don as well. Yeah, because Don has a point where he says that Greenpeace worship the earth and Louis clearly just cannot be asked. It's, it's like, <laughs> no, they do not. It seems a weird thing to start a fight about. They end up friends in the end anyway, and he gets an invite to come and stay whenever he likes. Following that, we have our kind of final goodbye with Mike Kane. The final father-son moment that those two have when Louis does actually attempt to help with the DIY and hammers like three nails into some wood. And then Mike gives him a gun to fire out into the distance. They talk quite candidly about what Mike thinks is coming. Like, what are they preparing for? And Mike says, they're preparing for all-out war. And Louis says, when do you think this is going to happen? Bear in mind, this is, what, 97, 98. Mike says he thinks it's going to happen before 2000. And then apologises. He says, there's going to be a war. I'm sorry. As if he's the bearer of bad news for Louis. And Louis says, who are we going to war with? Mike says, it's the survivalists and the patriots against the new world order. Louis is kind of asking Mike to give up this life. And he says that the fact he's not paying taxes is going to provoke these people. And and he seems genuinely quite concerned about Mike's welfare. Mike assures Louis, if something happens like that, if you read about that, it won't be because I started it. Which I don't know if that is that comforting, really, is it? 
No, not particularly. So then there is 30 seconds left on the tape and counting. And it's the crew and Louis being bundled out the door. And we miss the point where Louis says to Mike, don't do anything silly. There's a lot of suspense. And then there's a, a title card to inform us that Mike did not do anything silly. And as of 2004, um, basing this on an interaction Louis had on Twitter, he wrote this in 2014. Someone asks about if you had any info on Mike Kane, and Louis replies, last sighted working as a truck driver in Las Vegas in 2004. Mm, that doesn't sound very survivalist. No, so maybe Mike moved on to another life, another kind of perspective. So, good Louis or bad Louis? With an enthusiastic thumbs up, this is good Louis. Dealing with an organisation which is really on the, the edges of society. There is people there that you shouldn't like or shouldn't have any sort of connection with you do. There is that thing which we talked about before, which is undercutting scenes of really kind of domestic normalcy with scary ideas and really kind of conflicting political views. This is what Weird Wee Guns is really all about. I think the same. I think this is great, Louis, actually. I think this is probably my favourite episode of the season so far. I think he's relaxing. He's not trying to do too much over-the-top TV Nation-style antagonising. I think when you're speaking to an incredibly racist Nazi, then maybe it's okay to be a little bit antagonistic. And it gets people to react in a good way and show who they really are. But yeah, I don't think he's mean to anyone. It's a really good episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at allthroughpod. And thank you if you have already done that. Please give us a shout. We'd love to hear from you and have some chat. The cardboard tube never returned. I feel like we need to ask him about that. If we ever, for whatever reason, actually get to speak to Louis through, that's going to be the first question.